Hi. Thanks for tuning in today to the Business of Blockchain podcast, where we discuss common sense business for cutting-edge technologies. Together, we'll be hearing from experts in different fields and applying their knowledge to our own businesses. You'll occasionally also get to hear about my own experiences over the past seven years as a co-founder in the space. I hope you enjoy it, and if you do, please feel free to give this episode a like and a share because it really does help grow our community. Uh, hi, welcome back to the Business of Blockchain podcast. I am your host, Block2Chains, and I am here with a good friend of mine, uh, Casey Monroe, who has over 15 years experience in community management. He's a Google alum, and he was the senior community engagement and strategy lead for the Cardano Foundation, which is a huge, uh, pretty, pretty big deal here in the blockchain space. Um, so Casey, could you just give us a little bit more of your background real quick? Yeah, no problem. Good morning, everybody, or, or whenever it is you might happen to be listening to this. Um, glad to have the chance to come on and, and talk to everybody for a little bit. I have, uh, uh, just to give you some background at me, I spent the past uh, just, just under a year um, working with the Cardano Foundation um, the, uh, in the senior community engagement and strategy lead role. Um, before that, um, it, it, it was kind of an unusual, uh, like um, they were taking a risk by hiring, definitely, hiring me definitely because my background is I'm a career community manager rather than a, you know, a, a blockchain expert who works with communities. Uh, and the majority of their community team over there is, uh, is, were uh, blockchain experts first. Um, so they have, so I, I wound up actually in the position of being, I think, probably the least technical uh, person on the, the community team. Um, but I think that you know, we, we were able to find a way to make that effective because uh, since my role was much more sort of uh, high-level high strategic kind of angle focused rather than um, trying to get into the, you know, the nitty-gritty details, I was able to you know, spend my time thinking about you know, community and social media best practices um, rather than, you know, focusing directly on like answering people's questions about the technology and I could leave that uh, to the others. Um, but this is a roundabout way of saying that my background before Cardano was not uh, in blockchain. Um, I got my start probably around 2005. I first, <laughs> initially I thought I was going to go into the music business as a recording engineer or a producer, but in like 2003, 2004, everything was moving into home studios and, uh, after I got laid off from my first big studio job um, at minimum wage, and when you're getting laid off at minimum wage, you know, <laughs> they're not doing great. Um, so I, uh, I started looking in other fields and I wound up in community management by accident. Um, I got hired on as a data entry temp for a company that handled, um, th that owned a lot of uh, MMORPG fan websites at, at a time where I was playing a ton of World of Warcraft. <laughs> Um, so when the, uh, uh, when they brought me in, they mentioned some of the websites that they owned and I said, oh, that's so funny. I use that website all the time. And the president then of the network, uh, brought me in and said like, can you explain to me how they work then? Because I, I don't have any experience in this area and I need, I need a little context to tell me what, you know, the, like how the community uses these tools and, um, and how I can sort of provide them with tools and resources that they actually can use. And that was... Um, you know, I guess my answers were good because he brought me in as a, uh, um, just like an office assistant. 
um, just very generic, like just sort of keep me around the office kind of a role, you know, making coffee and like filing papers. Uh, and a year later, I was the head of community and content for their flagship website, uh, wowhead.com. Um, so if anybody is still a World of Warcraft player, you probably spent some time on Wowhead. Um, but I was there for about four years. Um, since then, I went to, uh, uh, to Zynga for about two and a half years during the height of sort of the Facebook gaming craze. Um, worked for a little while at, um, uh, at Google, building their, uh, their community for small business owners. Um, now defunct, unfortunately, since they shut down Google+, and that's the platform we were building on. Um, but after that, I spent some time with Toyota and their advanced technology vehicles division working with uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicle drivers, which was a really fascinating uh, uh, position. And then most recently at uh, Spiceworks, you know, for any of you IT workers out there, I was at Spiceworks for about a year. Uh, and then uh, most recently at the Cardano Foundation. I uh, stepped down from my role at Cardano in August. Um, and uh, right now I'm doing, uh, you know, consulting work while I'm looking for the next thing to come along. Right on. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's quite the background. Um, one of the things I've, I've noticed that you, you mentioned right off the bat is, you know, you, you're not blockchain first, you're a community management first. That's something I've noticed a lot more of recently. Uh, you notice that more in, in the blockchain space? or Yeah, uh, we, we, we seem to be having this influx of just professionals coming in that, that aren't familiar with blockchain. Um, I think... I think that makes sense if you sort of t like, I mean, there's, there's two reasons I think for somebody to sort of go into the space in that sense. And uh, one of them being the obvious reason that like, Hey, we, we smell money. Um, and you know, there's a lot of sort of influx of cash into blockchain right now. And it makes sense to have, you know, even the more sort of mercenary, like, you know, people in the workforce sort of sniffing around looking for opportunities. But also I think um, blockchain is, is, you know, it's sort of reaching this level of more like, you know, it, it it used to be that in the mind of the like you know the typical person, even in the tech space, not even uh, like let alone somebody who's not sort of tech savvy, uh, but even in the tech space, like you know, blockchain meant Bitcoin, and Bitcoin meant like getting scammed out of your money by you know strangers on the dark web. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that like you know, uh, I think that blockchain is sort of outgrowing that. Um, finally. Uh, took yes. longer, I think, than a lot of people were hoping. But I think it's, it's outgrowing that to the point now where professionals are starting to look at it as just like, well, this is just another technology field. So my community management experience, my marketing experience, I'm going to be able to take that from whatever other you know, sector of tech I might be working in and, and be able to apply it in blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% I see it as a positive. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of training that needs to happen. But Honestly, yeah, it's, it's been awesome to, to watch a lot of these people with, with no experience come in and just learn with fresh eyes. I mean, that's been and I think community a... management training. Uh, sorry, forgive me. I didn't mean to talk over oh, you. No, I, think, I think that uh, uh, community management training was an especially interesting angle because I think there are, there are communities that you can work with that will sort of prepare you for how to, to deal with uh, 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 and work with a community of, of blockchain developers. But it's there. Um, not every community like experience applies definitely um yeah. i think partially well, for where would you begin ahead. like out of curiosity i mean for for some of these companies just starting up a big question that we we hear a lot it's like where do you begin building a community and uh a lot of these projects are open source so where do you yeah. where do you draw the line between your open source community and and the actual user base and is there a difference between users versus uh the community 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think um, the, the big, the, the thing that sets, the, the, the key differentiating factor for a community in the blockchain space is not actually um, blockchain, in my opinion. The key differentiator is open source community. Um, and I think any, if you have experience working with um, a community of developers working on an open source project, um, regardless of whether it's a blockchain project or not, I think that experience will translate really well. Um, my, a lot of my experience came um, from projects that are, uh, I don't know what the best term for it is. I, like, it sounds a little harsh, but I guess I want to say a, a more authoritarian. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't mean that negatively, just in, from a purely corporate, like, you know, standpoint, you know, you have, right. you know, like, we own the brand and you are our, our customer and we develop this, this, you know, this product for you and hopefully you enjoy it and you pay us money for it. Um, but, you know, projects like, you know, even if you're working on uh, non-blockchain open source projects, if you're working on like Mozilla or with the, you know, the Firefox community or something like that, like it's, that's inevitably going to be a very different experience than if you're working with a company like, you know, like Toyota, for example, where it's just like, we make a product the way that we want to make it. And we do everything in our power to make it attractive to the consumer. But if the consumer does not like it, then the only choice that you have is to tell us that you don't like it and hope that we change our minds about what, the choice that we made. Um, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Like a lot of like, you know, and, and I think that community management, like I have a lot of experience in community management that, that comes from that perspective where, and, and even, you know, spending time working within those kinds of companies to try and make them more collaborative uh, because that's, I think uh, is a lot of the role of a community manager in a company like that, it's very easy for the developers of like a tech project to get kind of tunnel vision over like the individual segment of the project that they're working on. You know, they're focused on, on meeting their goals and meeting their deliverables. And it's easy to lose, sort of lose the perspective of the person who is actually trying to use their, your product to accomplish something. Right. So which one would you say is, is easier to, to manage? I think open source community is more difficult, but uh, I mean, like uh, it, it's, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody whose background was entirely in, in working with open source communities and was trying to make the transition in the other direction said the opposite, you know? Um, so I, I, it, it might yeah, just be sense. what you're used to. Uh, but I, th I do think that uh, like, you know, at least from my perspective, I think you have to be more, um, more careful with, with open source communities because the, the different, the, the, like it's, it's both good and uh, it's both more difficult and easier. Because if you're working with a, you know, a more like sort of brand or corporate project that you wind up in situations where there's this sort of inevitable conflict between what the customer wants and what the company wants. Because what the company wants is for you to pay them money and what the customer wants is for you to give them a, a high quality product for as little money as possible. Um, so there's this inherent conflict because like the company wants you to pay them more and the customer wants to pay you less. And so anytime you're working on like, you know, inevitably you're trying to sort of like walk this line where the company meets, gets their needs met and everybody gets a paycheck at the end of the day, but also, you know, the customer gets what they want so that the company continues to exist and to grow. Mm. Um, and I think in open source communities, that conflict doesn't exist um, because the, you know, everybody is, own has collective ownership of the product of project that they're working on um so right. what's good for the project is, like people might have differing opinions about what's good for the project 
but in general, it's safe to assume that what's good for the project is what's good for the community, and there isn't a, a conflict of interest there. So I think that, like in that sense, it's definitely easier. Um, but you also have, you know, the other side of that coin is that um, when you're working in a more sort of corporate brand-oriented community like aspect, you do have the ability to sort of like, yeah, you, know, you you have the ability, for instance, to like withhold information that you know that you feel would like steer people in 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 a direction that that's that's like counter to the like you know things like not releasing like you know like i've done a lot of, a lot of work on video games and a lot of times you don't want to release what's kind of information about what's coming up early because it might change and if it changes people are going to be disappointed because right. they'll build these expectations about what you said was coming like that kind of thing happens all the time and it's why you see in the video games community people tend to be kind of more closed off um, but in an open source community, obviously, that's not, even if that was a, a good for the project, which in most cases it's not, but even if it was, like, there's nothing, you, you, you can't do that. Like, there's nothing you can do. Um, <laughs> yeah. You don't have the option to, to sort of go in that direction. Um, and then and you have, like, in the same way that you see sometimes now in these more um, sort of, like, collaborative kind of crowdsourced, crowdfunded projects, like Kickstarters and... Um, you know, early access games on Steam. Like, sorry, my, my, I'm, I realize I talk about video games a lot. No, hey, where my hey, sort man, of early I, career comes from. Yeah, you and I probably play the, the same amount of video games. Uh, so feel free. <laughs> this is just that. something that our listeners are going to have to bear with. Yeah, Because it's something we both love. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point, though, is that if you're, you know, like working in this, like, you know, uh, a space where you're dealing with like an early access game or you're or dealing with a Kickstarter or something like that, you know, and you have you know, uh, backers, you know, people who are invested in your project, um, then like they have this sense of ownership. They have, and, and rightfully so, they have the sense that like, you know, I have a stake in what the decisions that you make, like as a community manager and the decisions that you make, and you have a responsibility to the community to be transparent with them. And, you know, and that responsibility you know, like it, it still exists in the corporate environment, but it's definitely different. Um, right. It's a purely moral responsibility. Um, and, and it's a practical responsibility in an open source community. And then when you have like in blockchain, you have basically all of the complication of um, a community that's like an open source software project, like, you know, Firefox or, or you know, like one, like uh, you have all the responsibility that comes from like, a like the forward motion on the project project is is has to come from the developer community that you manage, but combined with that, you also have all the responsibility of the fact that like your community is probably made up of token holders. Like if you're issuing a cryptocurrency, then probably these people also have tokens, and which means that a they have like a vested financial interest in the success of the project, and b they have the sense that like they own a piece of it, which in a very real sense they do. Um, so you not only have like all the complication of like an open source software project, you have all the complication of like a Kickstarter or a, you know, a crowdfunded uh, project. And then, uh, you know, and all of this combined, um, it, you know, it's, there, there's a lot of things to consider when you're, when you're managing a community like that. It, you have a lot of potential that you don't necessarily have in a more corporate environment because you don't have to go through these sort of like, hoops of approval and like legal sign off and all that sort of thing, your role right. instead becomes about empowering and encouraging and enabling your community to build and share and distribute and promote awesome things. 
I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me, so like, well, like, let's take Ethereum, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how would you go about, um, out of, like, out of curiosity, who's more important? The, the people that are using the tokens created uh, with an ERC-20 standard or that are running on Ethereum or the development community? Like, which, as a professional community manager, would you focus more on? I think it, I think it depends on the lifespan of the project. You know, or, or sorry, like the, the, like the, not the lifespan, but the, you know, the, where you are in the life cycle of the project. Um, and I think it changes over time. Like I think in general, early on in the project, you should be focusing primarily on, you know, the, the people who are ensuring the integrity of the network. Um, you know, and, and, and Cardano, it was a focus on, on stake pool operators. Um, and, and I think it's important, you know, especially in sort of the early stages to make sure that like, you know, because that's your foundation. Like everything else has to be built on, built on top of the stability and security of the network. And if the, you know, the stability and security of the network is at all at risk, then like you're going to wind up, you know, in a situation where no matter what you try to build on top of it, it's going to be shaky and it's going to be at risk of, of collapse. Um, and I think that once you have this sort of secure baseline, then you build on top of that uh, with your development community. Um, because I think you see... You know, it's like, um, think of it as like, you know, if you're, if you're building like an iPhone, you know, or something like that, um, you need to make sure that like the quality of the hardware is solid first. Like if you're inventing a new smartphone, first of all, the hardware has to be sturdy, stable, and functional. And then on top of that, you build, you have to build quality software to run the operating system. Um, and once those two things are in place and you're confident in them, then you say, okay, developers, we want you to build on top of this platform because the no developers aren't going to will, want to build on top of the platform if it isn't stable and right. it isn't you know like uh, like pr- like prepared for success. But whether or not you actually get the sort of like success and adoption and recognition on a wide scale that you're looking for is dependent on what you can do with the technology. Um, mm-hmm. And what you can do with the technology comes down to like I don't know what are the developers building on it. Um, if it does cool stuff, like, because people, like, people who are interested, the, you have, like, you know, people who are interested in blockchain who are going to be following you because you're doing something cool in the blockchain space, but you can't make a, you know, a, a truly successful project with only those people. You have to reach people who are, like, I don't care whether blockchain is what solves my problem, but I have a problem and I need somebody to solve it for me. It, can you solve it? And if you come in and say, like, hey, this blockchain solution will solve your problem. They'll be like, great, we're going to adopt it. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, what the, the, you know, like what kind of a technology it's based on or anything like that. It matters whether or not it works. Um, and in order to, but in order to get to that point where you're, you know, like providing solutions to people who are only interested in like uh, making sure that their stuff works. Um, once in order to get to that point, you have to start with the you know, stability and security of the network. And then you build on top of that the uh, you know the, the the actual like sort of like cool stuff that the technology can do. Okay. Yeah. No. That that makes that makes complete sense. Well, once you get the community started, though, like how do you how do you sustain it o- over time? What what goes into that? Because recently, um, I'm not going to name names, but a few projects have um, clearly become unstable. Uh, mm. To put it nicely, they went they went through an ICO. Um, and they've officially launched and they, they raised all this money, all this capital. 
Um, they promised a bunch of results that they just, they haven't hit yet. Um, mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing now really seems to be 2017 coming to, coming to, you know, bite us in the rear for some of these projects that promised the world and have delivered half of it. And token holders are upset over that. And so it, there's, there's grounds for a lawsuit. Um, mm -hmm. How do you maintain a community in, in that, that style, I guess, that framework? Because it, it is a complicated situation to be stuck in because some of these are open source projects yeah. with that, that stakeholder um, side of it. And they, they sold themselves as utilities, mm -hmm. but they haven't been able to provide. Yeah, I think, you know, like this, anytime you're looking at a, in a sector where your, your whole thing is like, I want to develop like a whole new way of doing things, you run this, this kind of a risk. And I think, you know, it's not, uh, uh, and in some cases, you, you like you have people who are genuinely just like, in it to try and like, make a quick buck and cash out and, and bail. Um, and in some cases, you have like, sincerely well meaning people you know, who just like cannot get it together to, you know, to make things work. Like one, like one of my, one of my first jobs in, back in the music industry before I wound up in community, one of my very first jobs, I remember working for a dude who was paying everybody. Like I worked for him for about three months before it became clear that he was paying everybody with bad checks um, and like secretly sleeping in the office because he was homeless. Like, oh my goodness. And I fell for this, <laughs> like, like full on, just like hook, line and sinker. And I still, to this day, I sincerely believe that the dude, like, he couldn't get a loan, but he genuinely believed in his business idea. And he just thought that if he could kind of fake it if, till he made it long enough, then eventually enough money would come in that he'd be able to pay back all of his creditors and he'd be able to make it right. Um, I don't think the dude was a scammer. I think the dude was like, just, I mean, yeah, he was he a meant scammer. Well. Right. He, yeah, but, he meant like, well, he really but he just went about he was, it the wrong way. Exactly. He really okay. believed that like eventually like he could turn it into a legitimate business and it turns out he couldn't, but like, uh, I think he really sincerely believed that. And I think there's a lot of people like that in, in the blockchain space, like people who are really trying to make some like a solid dependable product and that, you know, makes people's lives better and changes the world. And they're just sort of like, uh, you know, if I just, if I can just sort of stretch this out long enough, eventually I'll be able to figure out these sort of insurmountable problems that I'm encountering. Mm. And I think that like a lot of, the, you know, when you're working in community like that, a lot of it has to depend on like, okay, like are these problems actually surroundable? Like you, you need to make a call because like there are, there are definitely situations where like the only like right thing to do is, is to bail because it's like, this is not a, uh, uh, you know, I, this isn't a community that, uh, um, that like, uh, like this isn't a product that's going to turn where the, the things that are frustrating or concerning the community are, are like, fixable problems. Um, and if that's the case, then I think, you know, the, the only thing to, uh, to do is to get out. Um, and, I, and I realize I say that, like, I say this with absolutely no bearing on my, my experience at Cardano. Um, because, like, I just want to be <laughs> yeah. clear here yeah. to my friends over at the team here. This yeah, is, uh, that's, that's like, probably safe, yeah. <laughs> not related I whatsoever. I think, Card like, I worked on the Cardano project and, like, specifically because I think, you know, I, I really believe in it and I think it has, uh, like, really smart people behind it. Mm. Um, so, but, you know, that's, uh, that said, like, when you wind up in one of these situations where it's just sort of, like, things are sort of collapsing around you, you have to ask yourself whether or not, like, you know, the, like, this is, a, wh whether the problems that you're running into are fixable 
Um, right. And if so, like the only way, the only path forward is transparency. Like you have to be able to say like, look, we recognize that this was a problem. Here's why it was a problem. Here's what we learned from the fact that it was a problem. Here's what we're going to do now. Um, and in this case of an open source community, um, you know, a lot of that comes down to like, here's why we need help from you to make it work. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great point. Um, no, that's, that, that should be pretty helpful for, for those listeners that are kind of working in the industry. So basically, if you see the community managers fleeing in mass, you should uh, reconsider maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, community managers bailing, like, then the, it's, it's a, like the, the most clear sign that that represents when, when the community manager is, bail, is bailing out, like the most common reason why that happens is because the people who are senior to them are not listening. Um, and, the P, and, and that goes you know, both ways. Like sometimes people will fire their community manager because they're not interested in, in because the community manager isn't telling them what they wanna hear. Um, and sometimes community managers will leave because they're trying to get a message across to the people higher up in the organization and it's not like, it's not sinking in. Mm -hmm. um, and the, so I think that's the most common reason why you see like, you know, aside from just like, you know, raw sort of like, hey, we ran out of money and we need to cut staff kind of situations. I think that's the most common reason why you see, you know, community managers like uh, go on a high sort of turnover rate. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, you know, like the, uh, you also, the only other reason, I think the only other common reason why community managers tend uh, like will will bail is because uh, is because of burnout. Um, community management has a really high burnout rate because you know in communities like like the ones that you're describing where it's um, you know uh, where there there are these sort of like high drama situations and things are kind of imploding and everybody's frustrated or talking about uh, you know concerned or talking about lawsuits. Um, in in most cases, it winds up being the community management's job to sort of absorb all of this frustration, um, both in terms of like, sometimes you have to just sort of like stand there and be the guy that people yell at when there's nothing you know you can do to change the situation. And sometimes even when there is things that you can do with the situation, like the community manager's job is to understand why people are frustrated, which involves putting yourself in like the mental and emotional position of like the angriest and most frustrated parts of your community over and over and over and over again. Um, and, and I think it's part of the reason why I'm kind of unusual in the community management space because I have so much, I've been doing like pure community management for so long. Um, it's most of the time, I, most of the community managers I know have found their way into another discipline um, after, you know, eight or 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. Partially, I think that's burnout. Partially, it's because I think, you know, community management salaries tend to, like, start to cap out, you know, at around, you know, $85,000, $90,000. And no matter how senior you are, if you can't go pushing forward than that, pushing higher than that, um, I think people start to get frustrated and look at other disciplines. You know, they learn to code yeah. and, and wind up making 160 overnight, or they, uh, you know, go into project management, or, they, you know, I know a, a bunch of community managers who became, like, agile coaches or you know product managers stuff like that oh okay um so going back to cardano uh one question i got when i was speaking with someone about about meeting with you was they were curious what, what your top three takeaways would be from your experience there 
uh, just given mm. the, the pretty radical shift that you made in your career into that uh, more open source community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't, I have to be, you know, sensitive about sort of what I, I talk about for my, my time there because, yeah. like, you know, they, um, they're uh, like, I, 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 not that there's like, you know, big corporate secrets or anything like that, but just like, I don't want to accidentally step into, you know, revealing some sort of like piece of confidential information. So yeah. forgive yeah, me if I wind up sounding a little cagey. Um, but that, that said, I think, you know, in terms of takeaways from my experience there, um, I think the first thing that I learned, uh, the, the first thing that I noted was that especially, especially when you're dealing with a, um, you know, a community like Cardano, where there's, uh, um, you know, w w where you're dealing with both, uh, you're working with both, you know, the sense of investment that comes from like, you know, having it be an open source project, like I mentioned before, as well as the sense of investment that comes from being potentially being a token holder and, and being sort of financially, you know, invested in the project. Um, the first thing uh, that I took away from it is that like you need everybody who becomes part of your community, especially in the early days um, for a, a, a blockchain community like this, the question on their mind is going to be, how can I help? How can I push this forward? How can I be a part of what you guys are doing? And if you don't have an answer for that question, for those people, then your community is going to get really frustrated really fast. Um, any situation where, you know, people wind up going like, hey, you know, I have, like, I, I'm really excited about this project and I want to, I don't know enough about, like, about programming to necessarily really help you do this kind of development, but I do know, like, I don't know, like, I have a lot of followers on Twitter, I guess. Like, how could I help you? You need to have an answer for that guy. You know, likewise, you know, I have, like, I'm a graphic designer. I don't know anything about, like, blockchain technology, but I think what you're doing is really cool. How can I help? You need to have an answer. Um, and I think the, the core of any um, good community in the blockchain space is going to be about, like, you know, finding, rolling out the welcome wagon to new people who are coming in and saying, like, hey, what are you interested in? What can you do? What, how, you know, what do you get like, uh, what gets you excited? And, and if you know, and knowing that information, being able to say like, oh yeah, okay. I can give, you know, like sort of sort people into, into categories to say like, hey, okay, so you guys, like here's some tools and resources and information that might help you find ways to contribute in your own, in, in a way that inspires you. And, and, and if you have this sort of information available to everybody, your community is going to be happy um, because they're going to be able to, you know, to, to make a difference, to own, like they're empowered to, to take ownership of, you know, of, of a change or uh, of an outcome. And, and that's, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of communities in general, but, but specifically in the blockchain space, there's a lot of places where people sort of go, like, hey, this is great. I want to be a part of this. And they go, and the response they get, you know, is basically like, great, thanks. Glad you're here. Um, wait. And very quickly, you know, those people who are waiting get like, the best case scenario is they stop participating in the community because <laughs> they have nothing to do. And that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is they just become like toxic and frustrated and start, you know, trolling people because there's literally nothing else to occupy their time. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of... Um, I think, uh, I guess that's a good second takeaway because I, I don't think that's necessarily specifically a, a Cardano specific lesson. Um, but I think that like, 
it's important to remember from a community management perspective that like people are not like just toxic people or not. Like it's not as simple as like, um, just like, oh, well, you know, you have to keep the toxic people out of your community. There are, you know, people who just want to go find spaces on the internet to be bullies and harass people. Like those people exist and you do want to keep them out of your community. But the vast majority of people that you encounter on the internet are basically trying to acclimate to the, like, the level of discourse they feel is surrounding them. Um, and when you see different sort of like levels of discourse, that's generally because everybody's experience of the internet is different based on how they're hanging, where they're hanging out and what, where they're spending their time. So if you have, um, you know, there are lots of people who might be just like unforgivable, like, you know, forum trolls from the depths of 4chan or whatever it might be. <laughs> but, you know, if they're participating in, if you've created a community space where people are kind to each other and, and supportive and, and empowering and, and encourage uh, other, each other to be successful, then when they, if that's a community that they want to be a part of for whatever reason, then like those people will begin sort of peek their nose into that community. And when they see it, they'll look around and like, oh, is this how people talk to each other around here? And I guess, I guess that's how I'm going to talk to people when I'm here. So if you, like, people will acclimate to the level of communication that they, they feel surrounded by. So if you've created a community where people are gentle, encouraging, and empowering, and collaborative with each other, and other people want to become a part of that community, they will intuit that in order to do that, they need to, you know, acclimate to associating with other people in that way. Um, so I think that uh, you know anybody who's in in, in the blockchain space is, is would be well served to to keep that in mind, especially. Um, and I guess this is a good point number three for open source communities. The most important thing is these. You're looking at people who are going to be expected to collaborate with one another to create something. Um, and in an environment like that, it's like. You know, it's, it, you, you have to imagine it in terms of like the group project in, in school, you know, like, and if you are in your group project with like four or five other people and every single one of those people is invested in the outcome of the project, wants themselves to get a good grade, wants everybody to get a good grade and wants it to, you know, to come out well and feels like, you know, our sense of responsibility to the other people who are participating, then you're going to ace that project. Um, but if you have like one dude it's just sort of like, eh, I'm just going to, you know, like go home and, and drink beer and I'm going to completely ignore that, like I have a project due and somebody else has to do their work for them. Like that whole project, even if it's like four people who are really excited and one like jerk, it's going to affect that whole project. Um, and it's going to affect like the other four people who are really excited are going to get frustrated. They're going to start sort of like covering their own butts rather than working collaboratively. And, and it, it, um, that sort of like selfishness and, and disinterest in the collective good from like one person in the project creates those feelings in everybody else because like the, the collaboration kind of only works if everybody's bought in. Um, and in practice, what that means is like, if you have people who are messing up this sort of collaborative vibe, get them out. Like, it doesn't matter how, like, quality their contributions are if they're, 
like outside of the software itself, their contribution to the community is to just like trash everybody else that they encounter because you're trying to create an environment where people feel comfortable opening up and, and working together with other people. And if anybody is acting against that, then you're, it only takes a few to mess everything up for one. Uh, and for another, like any, it, when people act against that goal, it messes things up for everybody. It doesn't just mess things up for them personally, or even just for the people that they personally touch, because each person that they encounter gets more like frustrated and feels like they need to sort of cover themselves more rather than extending themselves for the collective good of the project. Um, and then you have like, and the more people are working that way, because again, people acclimate to the, the, their surroundings, they acclimate to the community they're participating in. So over time, if like, your community is a place that encourages and empowers these people who might be good individual contributors, but they're jerks, then those people are going to become like the tone of your community. And once again, people who might have been the opposite is true of uh, the opposite with the 4chan troll is true as well. People who might be like friendly and positive like contributors in other communities, if they contribute, if they become a part of your community and it's a place where people are trashing each other all the time, then they're going to see that behavior and go, oh, I guess this is how people talk to each other here. If I want to fit in, I'm going to have to behave that way too. Mm. So no matter what, like what the tone, you can make, make rules that set sort of the tone of, of the community and you can enforce them by hand, but that only works early when the community is small. So you have to do it then because the only way that it becomes enforceable at scale is if the community itself does it for you by encountering anybody who behaves like counter to the ways that your community wants to behave, you want mm. your community to behave. And if you train them well, then, and you set sort of the cultural expectation that like, no, this is a place where people are kind and supportive and nice to each other. Then when other people try and join the community later, you know, and they don't want to behave that way, then you're going to get like the Black Panther gif of like, we don't do that here. Like this isn't, that's not the way that we, like that's not the way this project works. Right. And that's the sing that sort of social pressure is the only consistent, reliable, scalable method that you can use for setting behavioral standards in the community. So you have mm -hmm. to lay the groundwork. So it sounds like psychology plays a pretty sizable role in community management. Definitely. Behavior, uh, especially psychology, if you're uh, like, if you're studying behavior and group, behavioral and group psychology in, in you know, college I, you know, or, you know, taking classes in it online, I think that will serve you extremely well in this kind of a field. Mm. Um, another question I had kind of getting into a different kind of community. Um, so there, there's, there's different segments of community. One of the communities that we deal with every single day, uh, whether you're founding a business, working in a business, is the community in the office. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, <clears throat> we're in a very strange place right now. Um, so I was curious to, to kind of get your your take on, you know, what's the future of our office communities? And, and if most companies are uh, adopting this hybrid model of work from home and in-office training, what's that, what's that going to look like, in your opinion? Good question. Um, for, first and foremost, I think if anybody wants to try and tell you what the workforce uh, is going to look like, you know, next year, um, they're like, they're lying uh, because nobody has any idea. Um, so like, That's fair. 
So I'm going to tell you what I think, but like, you know, absolutely take this with a grain of salt because like we have about as much likelihood of predicting what next year is going to look like in the workforce as we did last year of predicting what this year was going to look like. Um, so that, but that having been said, um, I do think that like we're seeing a couple of like your, first of all, your, your intuition is very good to, to identify, you know, uh, uh, it's a, a lesson that I, I find myself frequently having to teach young community managers who are just getting started, that the first community that you need to learn how to manage is, is your, your colleagues and your, your office community. Um, and if you're not sort of doing, if you're only doing the work to do, uh, to manage like the external community and not doing the work to manage the internal community together with your, your, your coworkers, then you're, you know, you're falling down on the job. Um, so that said, um, I think that the, uh, uh, like that's a starting point um, and you're, you're very clever to catch it. Um, but that, uh, you know, in terms of how those communities are gonna evolve, like the first and biggest change that I think we're already starting to see is that um, I think that like blo the blockchain world is already, I think, very well equipped to kind of negotiate this sort of transition to this remote work model. Um, because the vast majority of, of, you know, like any sort of open source software project is going to be, you know, filled with contributions from like thousands of, of different people all over the world. And if you have that, you know, like opportunity, like, you know, if you're, if that's already the work that you're doing, then, you know, when you're making a transition to everybody working remotely anyway, it's not going to look that different. Um, so blockchain startups, I think, have sort of an advantage here while everybody else is kind of trying to play catch up. Um, but I think also, you know, block, uh, like the blockchain world has to be sensitive because, um, you know, it used to be that there was all of this sort of cultural weight and momentum, you know, dedicated towards working towards the, you know, the office work model. And while I do think that there is still value, like I've been doing, like I, my career is like 15 years now and I have been doing remote work for roughly half of it. Um, so I do think that like, I'm a strong believer in like the value of the sort of remote work, uh, you know, environment. Um, so I think, but I think that like, you know, if there's a, there has always been a lot of cultural momentum and weight attached to the idea of physically, you know, getting people into the office for, for eight hours a day. And I think that now the sort of lumbering giants of the tech world, the Amazons and Googles and Facebooks and you know, all of these are now like being forced to, like accommodate themselves to move from the more traditional model to a more remote work model. But what, what, you know, like what that means in the blockchain space is kind of that, like, you know, the, the eye of Sauron is upon you now at this point, because it means that like the big players are now like, well, we, we didn't want to invest, invest bazillions of dollars in figuring out how to do work remotely, but I guess we have to. So now we're going to invest a bazillion dollars in, in learning how to work remotely. So the sort of first player advantage on the field that like open source and, and blockchain has is going to dry up very quickly if, if you're not continuing to sort of push that, that model forward in new ways. Mm. Um, one of the, and, and I think that you have like, you know, one of the biggest changes that I've seen is that these, these larger players, these like, you know, uh, these big tech giants now, like one of the ways that you used to be able to, to lure talented workers away from these larger companies is just that uh, it was by location. You know, like maybe I don't want to like 
maybe I want really want to work for Google or Facebook or whatever it might be like, you know, so for the sake of argument, like, you know, maybe I really want to work there, but I don't live in a place that, you know, it makes sense for me to be able to like physically attend one of their offices. Um, and so, you know, in, uh, I, instead of going to work there, I, or accepting an offer, which might require me to relocate, then I'll stay, you know, in the place that I want to be and I'll work on a, you know, a smaller project for that's either locally based or it's distributed. Um, and that is disappearing very quickly. Mm -hmm. We're now reaching the point where like, if you want to hire talent, um, especially tech talent, like anywhere from anybody, like you are now competing with Google and Facebook. Um, like you have to meet, uh, and I think that's, uh, it's going to be challenging because it means that like the big, you know, you cannot just sort of, you have to have an offer for those people that's more than just like, we'll pay you more. Um, because right. like, you know, because you can't, <laughs> one of the things like I, they told me when I was working at Google is like the, 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 the law of the land is never try to hire somebody away from Google by offering them more money. Um, because Google has, first of all, Google has more money than you. It doesn't matter who you are. Google has more money. <laughs> yes. Um, and so if they really want to keep that person, they will pay more. It doesn't matter what number you come up with. If you, they really want to keep them, they will pay more. And if they don't really want to keep them and you get them, it wasn't somebody you wanted anyway. Mm. So if you, can, like, if you can afford to buy somebody away from Google or Facebook, then that, you, you picked the wrong guy. Because it's somebody that Google or Facebook feels comfortable just dropping rather than you know, throwing a couple extra pennies to keep them. Um, and if that's the case, like, and I'm sure there are lots of people like that, but, uh, uh, like, and, uh, and, uh, but like, if that's the case, then it means that like, maybe you should be, should have been looking at somebody different. So you need to have a, 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 an offer for people like this. That's more than just like, Hey, I'll just, you know, just pay them more cash. Mm. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. It'll be interesting to kind of see what these smaller companies come up with. Um, yeah. I can tell yeah, you now that um, now that my company is looking at, at LA and setting up an office, mm -hmm. um, it, it's been proposed that offices are predominantly going to be for training purposes and client meetings. Um, and that the uh, yeah. only people that need to be tied down are essentially C-level executives that need to be tied into the office. Um, that and certain higher level managers. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that um, I think that there is value in having a central location where people can gather, but mostly the value is in collaborative work. Um, and I think that w one of the things that I, I had to learn at Cardano actually is because like here's another takeaway for that last that, that last question. Um, uh, Cardano was one of my first times working at a at a team that was like primarily based outside of the United States. Um, I've worked with a lot of different companies with a lot of sort of, you know, international offices and an international reach, but for the most part, they were quote unquote American companies. Um, and, and Cardano's is, is emphatically not that, um, it's a, uh, you know, it, it, and even just sort of like, you know, the sort of like cultural expectations that you get are sort of different for a, a Swiss nonprofit foundation than they are for like an American tech company. But, um, but also because like I was working almost exclusively, you know, I was working with a team of, of seven community managers, including myself. 
uh, and I was working almost exclusively with, uh, I, I was the only member of the community team and the first member of the Cardano Foundation entirely to be located in the Americas, and like anywhere. Um, wow. And I had, uh, you know, and after, you know, they brought other people on, uh, they brought some more people on board who were in, you know, the same time zone as I was. But at the time, you know, I, I actually had to sort of split my day out so that I was meeting with, you know, the team in Europe in the morning and then taking my time off in the middle of the day and then meeting the team in Asia, you know, uh, at night. And this sort of like, you know, finding ways to do this sort of collective collaboration was a really important um, uh, skill uh, for trying to manage this this team of remote workers. And, and the big thing that I caught uh, uh, early on that I hadn't anticipated was sort of a hole in my, um, uh, like, management style, I guess, uh, was that I, um, I hadn't anticipated the, the requirements of a team for whom most of them English was a, a second language. Um, and they all are, you know, fluent English speakers, but because, but anytime you're dealing with somebody who's got, uh, you know, for whom English is a second language, they might be just a little less comfortable, like getting their thoughts out on the fly. Um, and one of the things I learned early on is that my sort of like style of communicating tended to be like, well, I just, I want to get everybody in the room and then we'll all, we'll all brainstorm, you know, we'll all sort of like just kind of talk out our ideas. And, and then at the end of it, I think we'll be confident that whatever it is that we have is, is going to be cool. Um, right. Yeah. And that's my way of doing things. But when, you know, two thirds of the people who are doing the brainstorming are, you know, people who might be less comfortable expressing themselves out loud in English than they would in their native language, then that kind of an environment can be really difficult for them to manage. Um, because especially because uh, like, as you can see from having me as a guest on the podcast, like I talk a lot. Um, <laughs> and me and, and, you know, and I tend to get along well with other people who also are like, you know, comfortable, natural, easy speakers, because, you know, we get into the sort of back and forth rhythm and it helps me, um, you know, sort of get my ideas formulated. Um, but if you're not as comfortable talking, then you just kind of, you tune out because everything's going by really quickly and you can't follow it, or you don't feel comfortable expressing your concerns or thoughts um, like quickly enough. And you will sort of allow yourself to be, to be steamrolled because you can't quite, you know, like um, get, get your intended message across. Um, and, and it was a little while into my time at Cardano before I started, before I fully realized that that was what was happening. And I had to, uh, so I made the intentional choice to try and transition to a model where, you know, we might have a brainstorm session, but at the end of the brainstorm session, we would collect all of the thoughts and information from the brainstorm session into like some notes in a, you know, collaborative editing software. We use Google Docs, but but some notes in collaborative editing software. So the people who like might have had objections or concerns, but just in the moment couldn't quite formulate the words could then go back into the comments on the document, respond to them in their own time and get those ideas out. And then, you know, those of us who felt more comfortable communicating spoken, we could come and have another brainstorm session or we can have like, you know, engage directly in the comments and the documents so that we could have this sort of back and forth that we needed to make sure that we were getting, you know, that we were doing our best work. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I I hadn't even really considered that, and I've I've worked uh, cro across time zones like that as well. That's yeah, um, me either. Like you know, yeah, I, I, I walked in there going like, hey, we'll just get everybody on a conference call. We'll talk it out, and it'll be great. And then you know, all these people whose like natural language is you know huh, German or Dutch or Japanese or you know whatever it might be are going to be standing there going like, I don't, mm, I don't, 
I really want to participate, but like, I feel like I would just get ignored or I would embarrass myself because I wouldn't be able to remember the words. And yeah, I, I might, I might have to steal that from you uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as we kind of, I think we're getting to a point now where we gotta, we gotta start winding down. Um, but the one thing I did want to talk to you about was Decentraland because you have an extensive past in video games. Um, and there was a game that came out back in like 2001, I want to say, mm-hmm. that has a purely cash system. So you convert real US dollars to in-game currency um, and you can go and you can mine and everything that you have translates into that in-game currency and, and you can make real world money mm-hmm. playing this game. And it's minted several millionaires and it has a massively active community for being such a really old game, uh, even today. Um, Decentraland is very similar to that, but with a blockchain system underlying it. Which, uh, just for, you didn't identify which game are you talking about? I'm yeah, sure. I honestly, I, I, I was looking it up. It's, um, it's not, I, I really want to say Europa. That's not it. Um, are, are you thinking about Eve? No, it's not Eve. It's one of those though. It's very okay. similar to Eve. Uh, Eve doesn't have the uh, US dollar tie. They're like this one's actually tethered to the US dollar. Um, so one in-game dollar, if you will, uh, oh, I see. is equivalent to 10 cents US. Um, gotcha. Yeah, Eve, Eve has a, like a, has a built-in currency exchange. That's, uh, oh, does it? Can, yeah, you can exchange um, like cash directly for ISK or for game time, as well as exchanging ISK directly for ISK being the in-game currency for anybody else. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but thank the, you for but, clarifying that. <laughs> yeah, but you can also spend your, you know, your in-game currency to purchase additional game time. So if you're, you know, a power player, then your account pays for itself. Um, you have to be at a very high level of play to get that, and it takes a lot of time and investment. But, uh, but yeah, mm. if you have, if you're a power player, your account pays for itself. And I don't. That's I know that like I'm not sure which one. Uh, what's the one is uh, that you're thinking of? But like that's I, I definitely know that there are like. Uh, uh, games out there that, uh, that that work the way that you describe. Yeah, and, and I find that model fascinating. Yeah, because uh, you know I studied economics in, in school, and anything that, that that can simulate a real world economy in isolation, mm-hmm. uh, I just I fall in love with instantly. Um, it's especially, and, and I don't mean to, to get sidetracked, but I know we're trying to sort of round, round things up here. <laughs> but like, it's especially fascinating to me because you have these environments where like. You know, like I told you, I was a heavy World of Warcraft player. And what makes World of Warcraft, like the, the economy of World of Warcraft, like, you know, not work in comparison to like real world economy is because like you get money from killing monsters and the monsters respawn endlessly. So there's this constant influx of like, you know, and, and, and there are things that you do that basically every, uh, every minute of every gameplay hour um, that create new cash and infuse it into the system. Um, right. So there's also like this delicate balancing act in, in a game like World of Warcraft where they're t- also simultaneously trying to just like sink cash out of the economy, which is just like, you know, when you like spend in-game currency to buy like a digital item, like that currency just get, gets lit on fire and disappears. Like the ven- obviously the vendor <laughs> that you sell it to is not a real person. He's not going to spend that money and how much money you give him doesn't matter. It just disappears. Um, and so it's really interesting when you start to get into the sort of like weird liminal spaces where 
these like virtual economies kind of overlap with real economies and the different kind of expectations you have to have and, and assumptions you have to have going into an environment where you know you're going to tie your economy to the real world. Um, well, a lot of the back when I I got my started when got my start at uh, at Wowhead.com, um, the, the holding company was a company called uh, uh, Affinity Media, um, and Affinity um, was also owns uh, at least like up until I started working there, also owned IGE. Um, which is, uh, you know, for those of you who know your history, that's internet gaming entertainment. And they were sort of the, the granddaddy of the like illicit third party pay us cash and we'll give you game gold uh, websites. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, and, and one of the first things that I did actually like at Wowhead was trying to manage the, um, the sort of backlash which, that came from the fact that like, you know, IGE was pretty universally hated in the World of Warcraft community, even kind of by the people who used it. Um, and so the idea that like, you know, Wowhead might be associated with that, with a, something like that was, uh, you know, there's a lot of negative backlash around it. But, uh, but at the time, the CEO of, uh, of uh, Affinity, at least for a stretch at the beginning, was a guy named Brock Pierce, um, who you guys may recognize because he's currently the chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation. Um, and and if I'm not mistaken, running for president, he is also United running States. for president. That's yeah. right. Um, and which was, <laughs> you know, like an interesting choice. But like in this kind of an environment, I can certainly see how one might be tempted. Um, yeah, for sure. But I think that like uh, the the guy is is really smart, and and it, it's it's fascinating because like the 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 thing that fascinated him um, is is the very same thing that that that's you know fascinating you is that like that what captured his his imagination is like this idea of like how economies work in virtual spaces and how they overlap with real world economies so seeing that kind of stuff come up now especially as we're you know like struggling with this this pandemic and like virtual spaces are the kind of the only spaces we have to connect with each other um and combined with the fact that like you know vr is becoming like you know slowly chugging its way towards more mainstream acceptance and you're seeing things like, you know, Decentraland where it's like, you know, you know, we're very close to sort of like reinventing central, like second life, but, you know, in such a way that like, you don't, you know, you can like, you know, fully occupy that space. So that overlap between these like virtual and real economies is becoming more and more fascinating all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. I'm, I'm fascinated. They've uh, converted real estate. Um, was their mm -hmm. first big play in Decentraland, actually. That's um, fascinating. So you can actually I'm not as, go I was in telling and you before buy. the. Sorry, sorry. Um, but I was telling you before we got started that I'm not as familiar with Decentraland as I'd like to be, but I have spent a little bit of time in, in alt space VR, which is, you know, the more traditional sort of like corporate like angle um, mm -hmm. on the same sort of problem. Um, and I'm definitely curious about how the business model is different and how it works. But I do have like, especially now, there are people who are doing such, such interesting work in the VR space. And when that start, starts to sort of overlap with the like finance and economic space, it's going to be really, really cool. Like I have, uh, I've done some work um, in the past with a group that uh, I, I want to take the time to plug called Pigeonhole Productions. Um, and what Pigeonhole does, uh, like among other things, but like what they do is they try and create these sort of collaborative like experiences in um, like virtual online space. Uh, and the goal is like, they're trying to create a, 
like an environment basically where it's just sort of like, okay, our project is like, let's envision what the, the future of like this particular region of this area in the United States might look like, like a decade from now. Like, because, you know, if you can't imagine a better future, it's going to be really hard for you to try and create one. So the first step in a lot of these kind of situations where you're trying to work to improve things is like, okay, the thing that we want to make, like, what would it look like if it was real? Um, and a lot of cases it's like, okay, I can take a sketchbook. I can like write down some notes, but you can also work with a group like Pigeonhole and their whole thing is going to be like, okay, we're going to talk about it in this collaborative VR environment about what this space would look like. And then you all are going to go home and our team is going to spend a week like building this for you in alt space. And you're going to come back in a week and we are going to show you around the thing that you imagined in virtual reality. Wow. And you're going to sit here and exist in this space. And we, there, I got to tell you, man, like the feeling of just like in through virtual reality, just like existing in this like imaginary space that you brainstormed, like, there's, there are like sort of, I don't know, there's like, there's doors of creativity that that kind of work unlocks that, that you don't even realize are closed. Yeah, because that's, like that's crazy. The physical and emotional impact of just like, you know, you know, placing yourself in the shoes of somebody who exists in the world that you create is, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's amazing stuff. So Google it, it's Pigeonhole Productions. Um, these guys are really brilliant and, uh, and anything I can do to get them more, more cash and more attention is, is going <laughs> yeah, to work sure. out well for everybody. All right. So last question. Um, I know you've already received plenty of questions about this. Um, what does it take to become a community manager? Uh, what are the most logical steps to pursue and what are some of the, the tools one should know and, and have under their belt before pursuing uh, whether it's a, a change in a career path or graduating and pursuing that career path? Good question. Um, and, and take anything that I say to answer this question with a grain of salt, because inevitably, like, I did it by accident. Um, so I can only tell you what I think would work today. Um, but the, you know, like, I, but to be clear, like, you know, I was doing data entry work and I just randomly got lucky on the company I was working with. At the time I started doing it, I did not know that community management was a job that somebody could have. Um, <laughs> so like that, but that having been said, um, I think that there are a lot of positions out there um, for like entry level community managers, people who have, uh, you know, like a couple of like one or two years of experience and uh, at most uh, and, and, and all that sort of thing. And I think that there, it, it's, it makes sense there are lots of opportunities to, you know, for somebody who doesn't necessarily have any direct work experience to transition into one of those roles. Um, but you have to be able to demonstrate that you have the skill set. And the way to do that um, is if you're passionate about, excuse me, if you're passionate about community management and, and working in online communities, there are lots of spaces where you can just like walk in right now and make a difference. You can um, you know, like find a fandom that you're passionate about and offer to moderate their subreddit um, or become like a wiki editor. Like, you know, these, these are things that like on a resume, these provide, these are direct like lines from this kind of work to community management. If you're, you know, moderating a forum, if you are operating a social media account, if you are, even if you have like 
um, you know, you can look for ways within your own sort of like community space to connect uh, within your own sort of digital space, I mean, to connect people. Um, even if it's just sort of like, you know, like the work that, uh, that you and I and Ben did with the eight is, is a perfect example. Um, it's, ju it's just an opportunity to say like, you know what, if I could just sort of like go and do this work in a vacuum, but if I can find other people who are trying to, you know, and in our case, it's, uh, you know, it was just the, just the work of finding a job. Um, right. And if, yeah. Um, and, and for any listeners that are unaware, Casey and I met through a, a group that essentially we, we set out, we put together a group of eight people. Um, and the goal is everybody gets a job and no one leaves the group until everybody else has a job. Yeah. Um, so that's how we originally met. And the idea was that we're going to do all of our work in public. You know, we're going to post, we're going to have like our little sort of like check-in conference calls to see how everybody's doing, offer each other advice, suggestions, feedback, connect people with our networks. And then we're going to share them with everybody um, because that way other people can benefit from, you know, the work that we're doing and the knowledge that we're sharing. Um, so when those things are coming out, like, you know, they'll, you'll see like the, we post our meeting notes, we post our, you know, like our, uh, uh, like the recordings of our little video calls so that um, you know, as we're sort of, doing things like offering feedback on each other's LinkedIn or learning how to use like automation for, you know, reaching out. Uh, you know, all these things are, are like, uh, this is a perfect example of somebody who, uh, who is doing, uh, of what it looks like to do community management work for, from nothing. Um, and that's, and there are always opportunities like this. Um, and the, you know, trends, like how you frame it on your resume becomes like a question, like, and how you sort of like convince people to sort of give you a shot and demonstrate that you have this skill set. Um, like, the, like those are the, all are challenges in any line of work. But if you have, like, if you want to start in community management um, professionally, like the place to begin is like to see what you can put together, you know, in terms of creating a community in a public place and a public platform where people can see it um, just on your own. And then once that's done about something you're passionate about, and then when somebody is just like, well, have you ever managed a community before? You can say, look, I grew this community from scratch to like, you know, 5,000 people on zero budget in three months. And, and any company who's looking to hire somebody who, to grow their community and is looking to invest a budget behind it is going to look at that work and say like, oh yeah, well, that looks good. <laughs> this looks like somebody who probably would be able to do good work with the money that we have. Them. Right. You know, yeah. I think that's that transition makes a lot of sense. Like it's easy. The, you know, transitioning from the first job to the second job is, you know, a different animal, but like trying to get into the first job, that's, that's the path that I would try and take. All right. Fantastic. And as far as your job is concerned, Casey, what is your ideal job description for any hiring managers that may be listening? I think, uh, you know, like there's two sides of it because there's like, part of it is just like, you know, if, so, if I could write a job description for somebody who wants to, to hire me, that's one thing. Um, if I could invent my dream job, that's a different one. Because <laughs> um, I think that like, you know, on one hand, like people who are looking to hire a CM, um, I think the best way, like there's a lot of confusion about the nature of what community management even involves. And I think that the best way to frame it is if you imagine, like if you have any marketing experience, you know, you're familiar with like a user journey or a, like, you know, a marketing funnel or something like that where you have right. at, at the top, you have people who have no idea who you are 
And then like each layer of the funnel, people become more aware and more invested in your brand until at the very bottom of the much smaller sort of pinpoint of the funnel, you have your like super users and evangelists and, and all that sort of thing. And I think that, um, you know, if you want to think of like a job description for how community management works, you start at the top with people who've never heard of you and taking those people and turning them into people who have heard of you, that's your marketing team's job. Um, your branding, you know, like user acquisition and all that sort of thing. And then they transition into people who are like invested in your project or product, who have purchased, who are, who are your customers, like in, in, and have signed up in whatever way. And then taking those people and turning them into like regularly engaged users or turning them into evangelists or turning them into people who help and support other users who, have, who use your product, that's your CM's job. You know, so basically like anything, as soon as you hit the point where the person is a customer and you want to turn them into a good customer, like that's your community manager's responsibility. And a good community manager should have a plan for how to transition every member of your community from each sort of step of that funnel all the way down until, you know, the goal of basically turning everybody into a super user. Um, and I think that like, you know, if, I, if you asked me what my dream job would be, um, I think that I would tell you that what I'd love to do is I'd love to collaborate with, uh, with, a de with developers to build a community platform, um, something like Reddit or, you know, uh, you know uh, like a tool upon which people can talk to each other. Mm -hmm. But with control panels on the back, on the admin side that allow people who don't have a development background, people like me who know community management but don't know programming, to be able to tweak and adjust the algorithms that the system uses to surface content. Um, the idea being that like, you know, something like Facebook's newsfeed, like there's an, a lot ton of like algorithmic decisions that are being made on the back end that decide what gets shown to you. Same thing with like Reddit's upvote and downvote, like sorting algorithm. Like the algorithms are all pretty opaque and they all make the, are constantly making these decisions about what content to show you and what content to hide from you. Um, and if I had my dream job, it would be collaborating on the development of a platform where people who are not technical have direct control over the algorithms that decide what gets surfaced and what gets hidden. And then once that's done, you can tweak those on the fly to encourage and reward and incentivize different types of community behavior based on what gets surfaced and what gets hidden. Um, and, you, and, that, and what that means is you can experiment. And that's really what I want to get to is I want to get to the point where you can experiment with making changes to the surfacing algorithm and seeing how it makes people feel about your product, seeing how it makes people like relate and talk to one another. Like, because the only companies I think that are really doing work in this space right now are companies like Facebook. They're not sharing that information because as far as they're concerned, it's the secret sauce. And honestly, they're doing some shady stuff with it that makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> and so it's just like, I would love access to the data they have on how like changes to the newsfeed affect user behavior. But since they're not sharing and they're going to make it illegal, even if I went to work for them for me to use it anywhere else, um, then the only way to do it is if we built a platform ourselves that we could tweak and just watch as, as things changed based on the tweaks that you made. Because then, you know, at the high level, you can then make this like an open source platform that other people can deploy for their own communities. And then you can provide them with like presets on the sort of algorithm control panel on the background to say like, hey, are you looking to be mostly an image sharing community? These presets for surfacing will work for you. If you're looking to be mostly a community of like 
like Stack Overflow where people are doing like questions and answers, then maybe these other presets are gonna be work, working for you. But if you don't like them, you can tweak them to make them work for you. That's what I would, that, that's like my dream product. Nice, that's, uh, that's a really in-depth description. <laughs> but it, it sounds <laughs> really necessary. Um, so I want to thank everybody for, for tuning into this. Uh, we went a little bit over, but it's, it's always a pleasure to, to sit down and have a conversation with Casey. Uh, if you did enjoy this podcast, please feel free to give it a like. Um, if you have any questions for Casey, uh, feel free to drop them in the comments section below. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll try and make sure he gets those um, and has a chance to answer them. Yeah. And if anybody um, is interested in reaching out to me uh, with questions or thoughts or concerns, you can find me and track me down at Casey at managing.community. All right. Sounds great. Um, and with your permission, I'll go ahead and I'll drop the links to your social, uh, social media down in the description below. Yeah, All right. For me. All right. Sounds great. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you again, Casey, for coming on. Thanks, everybody. I had a great time.